0: I'm Chris, and this is Curiously Polar. Hey, how's it going, Henry? You 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 noticed that I omitted the date at the beginning. <laughs> but at least episode 154, we have sort of a weird pre-recording vacation work situation.
1: So We just put more stuff in the pipeline. That's great. Well, haven't you been wanna... there in a long while.
0: We want to keep uh, bringing you as much as we can while everything is in turmoil and people are not here. And um, <laughs> anyway, so ah, here we are with a short Borel polar Newsreel and a topic. Today, we want to talk about um, the Arctic Encounter Symposium. But before we exactly. do that, we want to... Digging to two topics here. Um, You have brought us something about meltwater lakes that are not where they usually are.
1: Oh, that's very true. Um, When you talk about melting in Antarctica or the Arctic, then we usually tend to to look at the surface, uh, at glaciers, or at the glacier fronts, where they actually break off and uh, produce the icebergs. But what happened in Antarctica is that uh, the biggest chunk of the melting is happening at the bottom of the ice sheet, and that's something that's very difficult to measure and very difficult to see. And NASA has worked on that since 2007, and now they actually um, released some information on their mission, ICESat-2, which is a satellite that just uh, really um, has been custom-made to measure altitude and um, also penetrates the ice sheet and uh, just goes through the ice, measures uh, different densities, and How by that identifies the um, water.
0: How long ago is it that uh, the first dif- d- discovery of one of these really deep meltwater lakes um, came into the mainstream news? Because that's that must have been three, four, five years ago. Something like that.
1: I think so. Yeah. So the first um, big encounter of subglacial lakes was Lake Vostok, uh, in right. Antarctica. But that was in the sixties, uh, which then got confirmed in the um, in the nineties, I think. And the meltwater lakes is a rather new encounter. It's just really something um, that's kind of buffling that actually meltwater is, I mean, it is running through the ice, it is um, following gravity. So it's creating meltwater channels through the ice sheet. But then it actually um, deposits itself in compartments and empty compartments in the ice sheet. That is something new. And um, what now has been found out is that those meltwater lakes actually go down all the way to the bottom, to the, to the foundation of the, uh, of the ice sheet, where the ice sheet sits on the ba- uh, bedrock, and that's where the basal um, melting is happening. It's very similar to what's happening um, on the ice uh, shelves in the ocean. The big melting part of the ice shelves is not happening on the surface or on the front. It is actually on the bottom where the ocean is um, much warmer than the ice and is melting down the ice shelf from underneath. And similar effects are now uh, clearly visible at the bottom of the Antarctic ice sheet um, where the meltwater lakes at the bottom also uh, work a little bit as a heat storage and then um, accelerate the, um, the melting underneath, yeah. Hmm.
0: So not not in general a good thing if there's too much meltwater down there.
1: Uh, No, but it it, it helps a lot um, to actually understand basal melting much, much better, but also to actually get an idea of where the melting um, or the big portion of the melting happens. Because, you know... Um, in climate change discussion, in uh, this post-factual reality we live in, it doesn't really matter what um, the facts say. If you look at um, a weather map and it just says, wow, new temperature uh, record uh, temperatures, it's uh, minus 65 degrees uh, centigrade in, uh, in Antarctica – how is it possible that it melts? Uh, The surface temperature has nothing to do with the temperature at the bottom of the ice shelf. And that's just something that scientists have not really understood how the meltwater deposits itself and where it actually deposits itself. And now ISUC2 is actually capable of identifying those pockets, identifying those um, subglacial meltwater lakes, and by that can enhance just our understanding of the whole process that the glacier actually is.
0: And then some people still confuse
1: climate with weather. Oh, <laughs> certainly. That, that will always be the case, I think.
0: <laughs> I think that's, that's not going to change. Okay, next topic on the Polar Newsreel. Isolated Russia says it will invite non-Arctic states to develop its north,
1: says the Barnes Observer. Yeah, and the Barnes Observer is uh, a very interesting source for uh, Russian politics as it has... Journalists also in the Russia, uh, in the Russian Arctic, or in Russia itself, um, and if you look at the geopolitics happening right now uh, in, in Eastern Europe, uh, with the war in Ukraine going on, uh, Russia being largely isolated internationally, but also um, in the Arctic, and the Arctic has been one of the very big uh, projects of uh, Putin-led government in Russia, um, which now comes to a halt as all the Western countries have just um, put sanctions onto Russia. So they pulled out all their fundings. They are not fulfilling the contracts in terms of delivering infrastructure or helping out um, uh, funding or um, supporting um, missions. And Russia just really sees its Arctic project really threatened by that. And now Russia is looking a little bit um, in in the um, international sphere and just looks for support there and I I don't want to name them usual suspects but you have um, two countries which have been discussed um, widely in the last uh, one and a half months now as they have avoided a very clear standing towards Russia's um, war in Ukraine and those two countries are China and India and those both countries have very large interests in polar research um, India is just really gearing up its game there. China already has, and both are now stepping in and are supporting Russia in its Arctic uh, Arctic endeavours, which is not surprising. Um, both countries, uh, India and China, define itself as near-Arctic countries, whatever that means. But as they claim uh, the Himalaya as the third pole, It gives them the connection to the polar regions through the highest uh, point above sea level, which is um, obviously uh, Mount Everest in the Himalaya. So we see here some interesting geopolitical um, development happening due to the war. How successful or unsuccessful that is, that's something we have to uh, look later on. But... For now, it's really interesting to see how Putin tries to circumnavigate um, the sanctions from the West. And it's also interesting to see um, how China and India are willing to bypass those sanctions by the West, how much that will isolate themselves as they also um, have to face then uh, additional sanctions. But also... When we talk about infrastructure projects in the Arctic, we talk largely about the LNG plants in the um, Northern Sea Road and uh, Siberia, right? Uh, Yamal Peninsula, for example, with the two um, Yamal LNG and Arctic LNG too. The humongous uh, facilities actually drive the economic development in the region, but also in Russia in general, as it generates a lot of income.
0: Interesting times. We live in super interesting times right now. Man, okay, that concludes the Arctic Polar Newsreel. We are going to move on, well, to the Arctic, <laughs>
1: of Yeah, we're moving on to um, the Arctic Encounter Symposium, which happened uh, early April, and it's some. It's one of those um, events like Arctic Council uh, Assembly, um, the Arctic Circle Assembly, um, and the Far um, uh, the Arctic Encounter Symposium. Those two are like the the two. Um, I would say like the yeah, the lighthouse uh, projects in in that regard, and. The Arctic um, Encounter Symposium needed to um, to rest through, through a, pandem- a pandemic, so that was kind of in, a, a big thing to restart that. And they met with, they claim, a circumpolar Arctic community. But when you look at the program, there was largely a focus on... Um, Alaska, which is also not surprising as it is organised also uh, in cooperation with the uh, University of Alaska um, in Anchorage and Fairbanks. So There is no surprise in that uh, that there's a big um, weight on an Alaskan perspective. It's also a humongous part of the Arctic, to be fair. But what um, the Arctic Encounter Symposium does, it puts a spotlight uh, on the Arctic and Alaska in particular on um important topics for the time and that is uh, in the arctic and that's not only relevant in alaska but really circumpolar infrastructure connectivity economic development health is a very important topic throughout the pandemic but it has been already way before that housing and community resilience is still a humongous topic in those very remote areas climate change becomes more and more a threat up uh, in the north. Resource development and mining, a highly controversial topic. Transition of tourism, um, docks on there pretty much. It's uh, controversial in some areas and uh, very well received in others. And then last but not least, of of course, security in terms of facilitating and understanding um, uh, across borders. Just really, this is something we see with the war uh, in Ukraine going on Russia being pulled out of the Arctic um, Council, now there is a lot of uncertainty, um, how does Russia behave in the Arctic, what's going on, we just had a newsreel, and that's, uh, that has been a, a big, um, big part there, and throughout the symposium, there have been a couple of panels, a couple of, um, of, of highlights, and uh, the Youth Spotlight was one of uh, the ones that really um, yeah was eyeballed by a lot of people. Voices for the Future, was called, and was really looking at uh, forming leadership uh, for the Arctic, and uh, of course, particularly Alaska, but in general for the Arctic. Um, when you look at Indigenous people in the Arctic, but in general also people um, uh, living in the Arctic, not only Indigenous, but also people who have moved there, There is, in the past couple of years, um, a stronger development towards uh, engagement of of younger people. And that's something that's really, really important um, in those particular small communities, that we don't lose um, the youth in just moving away for high school and then possibly not coming back to the communities. And then you have just lost knowledge and uh, a lost opportunity and this particular panel just really looked onto that um, to see how that can change and um, when you look at topics like climate change um, uh, indigenous visibility mental health there are so many topics that really tackle uh, the young community and um, how that can actually be shaped and formed by young people and Then you look at new possibilities like social media, like um, channels like TikTok and Instagram, that really are used and facilitated and have a chance to actually um, transport the message from those small, very remote communities into a broader public and uh, raise awareness for the situation. And that was really interesting to see. Um, Part of that was also Indigenous women in in Arctic leadership. And um, Yon-Mari talked a lot about... um, uh, woman women in uh, exploration or in uh, polar research and that really goes right into there as well um in fostering uh more not only uh, women in general but particularly indige- indigenous women in arctic leadership and just reflecting a little bit from the arctic circle a couple of years back um, where we had a chance to to speak a couple of people that is really an important um important factor that to actually listen to Uh, indigenous people and indigenous women are largely unheard and that's just really something that has to change and that was really great to see in that panel of course when you look in those remote areas or to those remote areas you see um, infrastructure has always been a problem Um, they are so far scattered. Uh, they have, we have so few people living there. So bringing infrastructure always comes at a big cost. And infrastructure does not only mean roads or uh, or railway or airports, but it also means um, broadband internet, for example, we still have areas where um, schools in the Arctic uh, have to, to deal with 20 megabits per second internet, um, which is just something that really is a nightmare when it comes to remote uh, schooling throughout a pandemic, for example. Um, so, ec- economy, uh, economic development, that's really another big pillar in the Arctic Encounter uh, Symposium. There has been, um, next to the infrastructure projects, uh, also discussions about uh, feeling the heat of fish stocks on the move through climate change to really. Um, debate that the oceans—they um, are just like—they cross every geopolitical boundary. Like right? there, there is no such limitation. It's a bit like um,
0: space, you know. I had indeed. a discussion.
1: I had a discussion
0: recently with someone who, uh, who's in it, it, looking into like the new satellite constellations up there, that uh, like Starlink and so on. And that's a real problem. That um, it belongs to everyone. And if you have something up there in orbit, it crosses every country. So the same with the sea, yeah.
1: And it makes regulation very, very difficult, but it also makes it very difficult to come to an agreement um, when you see how fish stocks are moving or uh, collapsing, for example, um, due to change of the ocean um, consistency and stuff. So it's really something um interesting to see people coming together from all different kind of uh, backgrounds you have uh, fishery uh, management obviously shipping companies but you have the local communities in there who have still a very different way of fishing right um so all of those different uh point of views came together and uh discussed those and, and that's really uh the platform for it it's really great to see that happening um Climate change has become more and more an important topic over the years, and mitigation and transformation of the entire area—that's the the yeah the home base of um, Arctic indigenous people. So, how to adapt to those challenges um, through climate change has been another very big point. And at this point, um, there is no no one who really can deny. The fact that climate change is happening there still are debates if it's man-made or not well there is no debate but there are people who um, assume there is a debate but it's not but we have in particular in the arctic where the the change is happening at such a higher speed the the pace up there is just so much faster than everywhere else in the world that Uh, Actions have to be taken, and they have to be taken now. And that really connects not only the climate uh, change mitigation, but also the youth leadership, which has been very, very strong in pushing for that um, lately in recent years. And that's really um, interesting to linking scientific community who's very active in the Arctic uh, with local indigenous communities and then um, bigger corporations helping in there uh, to help as well. That's uh, pretty nice. And last but not least, and that was something that um, really caught my eye, that was the um, was not really a panel. It was a kind of a, a side event. One of the evenings, indigenous fashion. Um, so the but, but,
0: but that is lo- that that is logical that it keep, catches the eye because that always goes along with good photos and photography. And as exactly. a photographer, I can say pictures are the things that capture the imagination so much
1: quicker than a whole bunch of words. But it's also so uh, uh, so much lighter topic. Everything else is, a, is, is very difficult and very hard. So it's really politics talking there. Um, but in uh, Indigenous fashion, it also has a political component. But what, what happened here is really it, it tells a story of um, the Indigenous pe- uh, people of the Arctic by um, just giving them the perspective of traditional cloth of modern cloth uh, of indigenous people how the r- traditional um fashion has just evolved over the years and it's very uh, similar to what we talked about in voices of the north in that series where we we talked about how indigenous music um has evolved over the uh, the, the millennia um same is, uh, is is happening here in fashion and the pictures that reach us from um from Anchorage from that show is just they are, they are just really uh amazing to really see how traditional materials traditional patterns are reused um but also modern elements uh, yeah. I, you I like on the, on, on the I, glasses I, I'm, <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm I'm honing in on these glasses because um so if you're watching the video there's uh there's a modern take on the um snow glasses I don't know how do you call them with the slits in them that are usually made from bone and here Ski-goddles. they are yeah and here they are made from whatever they look like a modern fashion accessory so that's an interesting new take on something that I I've seen look very different awesome <laughs> <laughs>
1: And the whole thing was called the Far North Fashion Show. And the the aim was really to celebrate um, the arts of the indigenous people and also to help uh, to to realise how rich fashion and design um, from the entire circumpolar north really is. So we had um, a a couple of uh, Alaskan uh, designers there, but also uh, someone from Greenland. And that just really uh, brought me back to my very first encounter with... um, uh, indigenous fashion And that was a few years back in West Greenland In Sissimut. And There is a uh, a little family run business Called uh, Hivjot And they actually started To um, Reintroduce The traditional seal skin Fashion Which was used by Inuit for hunting When they went out uh, on, on the ice Hunting uh, seals, polar bears Whatever uh, it was But it has been um, pushed aside quite a lot um, in, in the past years and Gréviot really, really wanted to to take that as a chance to uh, use the material um, because it facilitates the the idea of how Inuit used to live, right? You, you use everything from, from, from an animal you, you just don't hunt for the meat uh, you use the bones, you use the skin you use everything of it and, and that has changed um also largely due to the fact that exporting seal products for example um or animal products uh, in, at large has been stopped and sanctioned um largely by the European Union and we talked about that in a previous episode as well yes a seal ban um but this company now tries to change that in a way that they turn it into fashion um that they reintroduce it to the younger generation in Greenland but also uh, circum polar north, Um, but also they have another line which is more fashion than actually um, like indigenous culture, and that's musk ox wool. And the musk ox wool, I'm really melting away for it. Is it that good? It's amazing. When you live in Iceland and you you really become an advocate for lamb wool, and then you try musk ox wool. It's so much lighter, it's so much softer, and so much warmer. It's incredible. It really is something I immediately bought a couple of items there because I really, really uh, like it. It's expensive. It's really not cheap. Um reason for that is that musk ox wool is highly limited. So the company has pledged that they're not hunting musk oxes, uh, oxen for for their wool. They only use the wool if hunters are hunting musk oxes for the purpose of hunting them, of uh, managing the stock, the livestock, using the meat, the bone, and then Riviot hops in and uses the wool. So the stock of wool is very, very limited, and that gives it a different price tag. Uh, obviously, also um, shipping from to, uh into the world adds as well to the costs. Um, but that's really a local business that really uh, buffered my mind and every time we're in the area i really try to make a stop there and also introduce my guests um, to review they offer um usually an introduction to their um uh, program to uh, to, the, to the products and items they have but also explain a little bit the, the the background of the family business and that's really something that's very dear to my heart Linking that to that uh, far-north fashion show was just something that was uh, naturally coming together here because it actually really is um, bringing the indigenous fashion onto the next level, introducing that also to a younger audience, to younger generation, to um, reconsider uh, local traditions. And that's just really something awesome.
0: Awesome. Wow. Thank you so much for researching all these things and bringing them to us. This brings us to the end of this episode. And by the way, Henry, you have a task. Um, I know a person here in this house who would be really, really interested on getting her hands on one of these musk ox yarns things. So no worries. (laughs) Put that that on on your your shopping list. (laughs) All right. You can find us online at curiouslypolar.com. We're, of course, on the tweets and everywhere else. See you then. Take care. Bye-bye.